0: If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form.
1: Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. A proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week... We want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett.
0: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about SWAT, but not the SWAT team. We're talking about SWAT Analysis. Strength, Weakness, Opportunity, Threat. And if you have no idea what any of that means, you're not alone. I had no idea either until the guest for the show was uh, enlightening me about what it is. Nick Murray from Bite Wing Games. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. Really glad to have you here. This is something, when you submitted your idea for a topic for the BGDL Community Spotlight, it's something I'd never heard of. Uh, you know, I've been around business, I've been around marketing, been around doing this kind of stuff for a while, and I had never run into SWAT analysis. And the more I uh, talked to you about it, the more I read about it, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I think this could be something that really helps game designers, you know, figure things out, how to help them get unstuck in their game design process. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing.
2: Sure. So I um, I guess the reason for the SWAT background is I went to Utah State University and got a bachelor's degree in business administration. Um, but after that, I actually ended up going to dental school at Ohio State University. And while there, my wife and I lived in an apartment complex where we were surrounded by a lot of couples who were in kind of a similar situation to us. They were grad students, professional students, uh, young families, that kind of thing. And being in dental school, um, especially in at Ohio State, it is a place where everybody wears gray and uh, they are finishing up a new building. But when I was there, it is a like a hundred year old building, very few windows. Um, you're talking about teeth all day, every day. And so I quickly needed a way to kind of balance out <laughs> that environment um, and, and kind of find entertainment and creativity to uh, to help keep me sane because um, any kind of professional school is, is a very stressful time. And what actually happened was um, I was reading the rules to photosynthesis. We were planning to play that with another couple one night. And this random thought occurred to me of, you know, it would be a cool game idea. And I'm sure that's happened to a lot of people. Suddenly that sends them down the rabbit hole. And next thing I knew, I was designing a board game during finals week. <laughs> of one of my dental school semesters, and it's a bold uh, strategy, bold strategy. <laughs> yeah, well, the good news is I, I passed my exams. I did great on them. Um, but for some reason that uh, I, I don't know if it's procrastination or something, but that drives me to, to be productive in other areas outside of studying. And uh, I actually ended up <laughs> the following semester finals week. I ended up designing my second board game. So I don't know. I. I don't miss taking exams at all, but in a sense I do because they somehow spurn creativity. Um, but now here I am, I play way more board games than I used to. Um, grew up on like Nintendo games and that kind of thing, playing occasional gateway games like Ticket to Ride and stuff. But now I'm deep into it for years and loving it. So,
0: well, very cool, man. Well, let's jump right into SWOT analysis. Tell me exactly what it is. Let's get a good working definition. Let's get a good frame for what we're going to be talking about. What is it?
2: So SWOT analysis is a tool that businesses and marketers and uh, those kinds of things, they they use on their brand, their company. They may use it on a project that they are focusing on developing. They may use it on a product uh, specifically and focus on ways to help improve it and to evaluate it within the industry. And so it's uh, SWOT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And typically when, when you do a SWOT analysis, you make a chart. If you can imagine a two by two box grid. And so you've got strengths and weaknesses in their own boxes, opportunities and threats in their own boxes. And in the column of strengths and weaknesses, those are internal things that you're evaluating your product or the, your subject by. And then in the opportunities and threats column, you're looking at external factors that affect your product or wh- whatever you're evaluating. Um, so that's kind of the, the basic use of the SWOT analysis.
0: Okay, very cool. And now why is this important? Why are we talking about this on a game design podcast?
2: So for me, I, I find that at times when I'm designing or developing a game, eventually I kind of plateau in my creativity. Um, you know, you initially get this vision for a game, you get very excited about it when you start churning out a couple interesting ideas and smashing them together and testing them out. And it feels like things just really start uh, snowballing and gaining momentum. Um, but over time, you you notice that snowball start to s- slow down and some some major problems crop up typically where you realize, okay, I need to get past these obstacles or these problems in my design so that I can feel confident to pitch it to a publisher or publish it myself and it's in those ruts or those plateaus that i found the swot analysis to be the most helpful Um, but it actually really applies to any stage of the development process it can be early brainstorming and design it can be um, deep into development or it could be as a publisher when they have a a completed design and they're looking at how do we best present and produce this Um, so for me i I have started to apply this uh, to every design that I'm working on and even multiple times throughout the stage of development. Um, so I, I came up with some questions here. I'm sure some people are starting to think like, okay, how do I apply this to my own design? And hopefully this will kind of help you uh, stumble upon some breakthroughs if you feel like you're stuck in a rut. So yeah, before we get to the questions, Let's talk about kind of your basic definition of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So if you're thinking about your game or your design, um, what are its strengths? You know what makes it stand out and why should it exist? Um, weaknesses are, are just the main things that you feel are holding it back or the main obstacles in the design that are uh, you're, you're struggling to overcome or to to make some kind of rule or tweak the rules to, to fix that problem or those problems. And then opportunities and threats are looking at more things like, um, how do you visualize for opportunities? How do you visualize this game, um, in the market on the game shelf on a Kickstarter launch page? Um, what's, what's going to be the hook, uh, to really drive people's interest. Whereas threats are going to be kind of the opposite side of that first impression of, of, you know, what's going to be, keep people from potentially looking into this game, exploring your Kickstarter page, what's going to keep people from purchasing it, um, what's going to keep people from playing it once they own it, um, all of those kinds of things. And so this is a great way to take kind of a comprehensive overhead look at your design.
0: Very cool. Now, is this something you would do before even starting a game design? Or is this more so something like once you've already been kind of been working on something?
2: Yeah. Well, for me, I've, I've found it's kind of midway in development where it helps me the most, but you can definitely start out when you're brainstorming even, and you're looking at um, maybe the mechanism or the theme uh, in that um, genre as a whole. And you're looking at what are maybe some opportunities within this mechanism um, or what are some you know common weaknesses of these mechanisms, um, those kinds of things. So it's, it's very helpful all along the process I've found.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's get into those questions. And I think you've got them broken down per category S W O
2: T. So tell me about the strengths and the questions that go along with that. Right. So strengths and weaknesses are internal things. You're looking at the, the design itself and changes you want to make there. So for strengths, um, one question I like to ask is why should this game exist? And you, you probably have some really good reasons for why you feel this game should exist. And if it exists within your game, that's a great strength. Um, also, what do playtesters love most about the game? Um, that would obviously be a strength or strengths. And then what are the most interesting aspects of the design? Those kind of things are, are key strengths that you should really keep at the core of your design. And as you're making, you know, small or large changes, you don't want to lose those things ideally, um, unless you, I guess you can find a better version of the same strength. Um, so those, those are some questions to consider when you're looking at the strengths of your game and you're, you're writing down a list of those strengths. As for weaknesses, you can ask, where is the design struggling and what are play testers main complaints about the design? Um, so those are some obvious weaknesses either that you yourself see or that others, you know, have commonly cropped up as you've tested the game. Also, what is keeping this design from becoming an all-time great? Um, sometimes to a fault, I compare my designs to the all-time greats out there. And, and I wonder, oh man, my, I can see the distance between, you know, my game and that game that's published and been an evergreen for all these years. Um, and that's a little bit daunting to do, but maybe just looking at what's the next obstacle that's keeping this game from becoming even greater would be something to, uh, put down as a weakness. And then finally, in what ways is the design not meeting your vision for the player experience? Um, cause I feel like we all have a vision going into the game design initially, and then it's, it can be hard to keep that vision as we get stuck in the mire and the, the little details of, uh, balancing and design. Um, And so it helps take a step back and realize, okay, where is this not meeting my all my overall vision for the game?
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm going to jump in real quick right there because I feel like this is something a lot of people struggle with. I know I've struggled with it. Where you do find yourself comparing the game you're working on to Pandemic, to Ticket to Ride, to something that sold a million billion copies, and it uh, it's very discouraging in that moment when you realize that uh, the games you're working on aren't anywhere near as good as a lot of the games that are on the market. But I feel like it's a, it's, it's a false comparison in a lot of ways because what you're really doing is comparing your behind the scenes to someone else's highlights, first of mm-hmm. all, and that's always a dangerous thing. But also right. you're comparing yourself and you maybe you've maybe been designing games for 15 minutes compared to Alan Moon, designer of Ticket to Ride, who's been designing games for like 25 years, right? And it's always a dangerous thing. So one thing I've really uh, been trying to do more often than, than not is compare myself to myself of just a little while ago. It's like, okay, this is this game is not where I want it to be, but this game is way better than the game I created last year. This game is way better than that piece of trash I threw away last month. You know, and and just kind of using that as an encouraging thing to say, okay, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm better today than I was yesterday, and it's a lot more helpful to to compare myself to myself, <laughs> if that makes sense. Because the other way around, it, it gets it becomes a mess. I think another thing to think about. And I call this the Dr. Phil strategy. If you're familiar with the Dr. Phil show, uh, the only reason people watch that show is to make themselves feel better about their own lives. Because your life might be a mess. It might be an absolute train wreck. But it's nowhere near as bad as the people on Dr. Phil. And so you can watch Dr. Phil and just feel better. about it. it's like, well, you know, my cousin's not marrying my sister. And, you know, I don't have crazy stuff like that going on. And so you can <laughs> feel a little bit better. So maybe find some games on the market that are just not any good. And obviously, this is opinion-based. And I'm not going to throw any games under the bus. But if there's games out there that you're like, this game is garbage. Well, compare your game to that garbage game and feel a little bit better because it's on a store shelf somewhere. And so I think that might be another a little personal strategy you can throw in there uh, as well.
2: Totally. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a tennis player and I'm always trying to improve my skills, but if I compare myself to Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal, I'm going to get pretty discouraged pretty quickly. Um, but I think, uh, one thing that comes to mind is I took a class a branding class and marketing from a, uh, a guy who worked for Procter and Gamble and Disney and Coca-Cola and, and was in charge of like these multi-billion dollar, uh, campaigns and he always talked about uh, making your product or your service different, better, and or special. And so, um, you know, it's, it's hard to make your game better than pandemic or ticket to ride in some sense, in some cases. Um, but to make it special or different in its own way, I think is, is something that I think we can all achieve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's keep going. Tell me about opportunities.
2: Okay, so opportunities and threats are more uh, they're typically external things you're looking at. Um, there can be you know, internal opportunities as well, as well you can throw on here. But um, some questions that I came up with include, what are common weaknesses of your theme and mechanism in the industry? Um, I feel like this is a great way to spurn creativity with your own design or when you're brainstorming and thinking, okay, what kind of you know deck builder do I want to make? But What are the most common weaknesses in deck builders? And that often... Um, turns into, at least I feel, some really interesting designs. You look at games like Fort that makes uh, turns interactive in between your own turns where you're following the suits of other players. Um, things like that where they they maybe t- took a look at a specific mechanism and, and thought, okay, I, I feel this is a problem with this mechanism. How can I solve that or or put a spin on it? So there's one opportunity. Another is what problems in the industry could this game attempt to solve so kind of a similar thing there. What do fans generally love most about the themes and mechanisms you are using? Um, and that's obviously something you probably want to hit on. Um, what aspects of the design are most marketable? What can the publisher use as a hook for potential backers or buyers? And then what might fans of this game want more of in the future? So all those things are, are killer opportunities you should be thinking about, um, even if you're not integrating it into the current design, keeping it in your back pocket as things to look into it as potential expansions or ways to, when you eventually make it to publishing or, or kickstarting the game, um, this is a great uh, list to come up with.
0: Yeah, I like this a lot. I really like the whole idea of like, how can I make my game different or special? And because that really just turns into, let's look at the other games on the market, the games that have done really well, now what can I do to you know differentiate my game and make it more interesting? Or maybe, you know, maybe normally these kind of games don't have a board, but in my game there is a board, and here's how you use it, or or something along those lines, right? And you just start thinking through the what if, like what if my game did this? What if my game answered this question? What if my game, you know, saw this as an opportunity as opposed to a drawback, and I, I use the mechanisms or use the components in this way? And I feel like it just can really help you just again ask those questions, and then maybe you get out of that design design funk that you're in.
2: Yeah, it's a really fun and natural way to spurn creativity is is finding the problems that are common and then, you know, just brainstorming ways to solve those problems within the genre. And it can also sometimes solve your own weaknesses if you're thinking of opportunities for your design mid-development. For sure.
0: All right. Tell me about threats.
2: Yeah, as for threats, um, questions you can ask are what aspects of the design or theme might make a poor first impression to observers? What popular published games might this design be compared to? What games or activities would this design compete with? What obstacles might prevent this design from being published, manufactured, or purchased? And finally, what are the potential barriers to entry of playing your game, such as accessibility? So all these things are threats to your game getting uh, looked at, purchased, played, kept in the collection, all those kinds of things and and minimizing your threats and being aware of them and finding ways to mitigate them are, I think, essential for the whole process, designing and publishing.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think this process can also be really helpful if you're going to pitch a game, right? If you sit down and really think through what are the strengths of my game that I can highlight to the publisher? What are some of the weaknesses that they're going to have questions about that I need to make sure I have answers for? and I'm not blindsided by something. I don't have an answer. I say something dumb and maybe something that wasn't even true. You know, you think about the opportunities in the marketplace because the publisher is, that's definitely what they're thinking, right? They're not really concerned about your game. They're concerned about making money. Uh, And so they're having to think about this as an investment. It's not, a good game design. I mean, you could have a great game. That's not gonna make any money and they're not gonna publish it because their main goal is to look at opportunities in the market and go, Oh, okay. This game is going to fill this, this need. And then the threat, same thing. It's like, okay, if, if your game is very similar to other games already out, then you're going to have to answer for that because a publisher, that's one of the first things they're going to think about. So I think this process can really be helpful with pitching as well. Uh, all right, so let's jump into maybe some examples. Let's do let's do a couple examples. Let's do uh, Settlers of Catan, or Catan as it's known now, and then let's do one of your games
2: as well as a follow-up. So tell me how you would use the SWOT analysis for Catan. Yeah, so you can look at Catan as it exists today, or you can think of it as maybe when it was a, a finished design way back in the day. Um, either way, I, I would say some of the strengths of Catan, if you were listing these out on a, on a board or a paper, would include the trading and negotiation aspect. People seem to really like that they can trade, you know, wood for sheep, like a mean uh, level famous saying. And uh, as well as how accessible it is, that's probably one of the key parts of Catan is that it's, it's both um, it has that str- strategy to it, maybe a, a little bit more than other mainstream games like Monopoly. Um, but it's, Highly accessible, which I can teach it to my parents, I can teach it to my kids, and that's why it's caught on so well. So those those would be two key strengths. Um, I'm sure there are more, but if you think about some of the weaknesses, um, you could ask, you know, probably any hobbyist gamer, and they could throw down some weaknesses for you because it seems to be uh, get a bad rap in that sense. Um, occasionally, and those would include, uh, there's a lot of luck to the game, right? So you're rolling dice and sometimes the turns go all the way around. It comes back to you and you don't get what you want, um, from the dice, even though you're, you built your settlement on a, uh, high ratio spot. And so that can be frustrating for people that they have less control over their destiny, as well as, um, maybe the game is a little bit too long compared to more modern board games. That are of the same complexity level. I can I can play multiple really fun games that pack a punch in the same amount of time that I can play Catan. Uh, As for opportunities, um, you know the look of the game hasn't changed much over the years, and and I I'm sure that there are still hardcore hobby gamer fans of Catan. So maybe there's an opportunity there for a premium or deluxe version of the game or with an updated artwork and maybe uh, tweaked and modernized rules, those kinds of things. As well as threats, you could look at really uh, any very popular games that are also kind of competing with it. Ticket to Ride would be a great example. Or games that are of a similar genre, like Concordia, is one that's a little bit more complex, but it's also easy to teach. It involves building out settlements and collecting resources from those settlements and expanding outward. Um, So you can look at similar games as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense, and hopefully that gives people an idea of how to take a game and go through this process. All right, tell me about maybe your a favorite game, a game that you've been working on, a game design that you've been you know taking through the steps. Tell me how you would apply this uh, analysis to that game.
2: Sure, so I think a, a good example would be Balloon Jockeys. Now, this is uh, one of the bigger designs I've been working on for a while. It's a strategy board game that involves hot air balloons and an element of trick taking. And when I set out to make this game, I had the vision of making a hot air balloon competition game, because that seemed like kind of an underrepresented theme within the industry. Yet it's it kind of reminds me a bit of Wingspan in the sense that like, you know, you look at a bird, you look at a hot air balloon, and it kind of evokes the sense of wonder. So it's just naturally appealing in my opinion. And so I wanted to capture the feeling of being a hot air balloon pilot competing in these real life competitions um, but also making it kind of a beautiful uh, game with a lot of table presence, right? So that was my, my thoughts going in. And as the design went on, I, I eventually, um, you know, things got really interesting and I came up with some ideas that I felt like, okay, this game, it has some some hooks that I know would, would make it do well in the industry. I, I know people would love, but then there are aspects of the game that are not working. I kind of hit this rut um, that we've talked about where the hand management and the card play didn't quite have the tension and the uh, the interesting you know turn to turn decisions that I wanted, the cards kind of felt samey. Um, so it was like everything in my hand it kind of let me do what I wanted to, regardless. As well as the pacing was a little bit slow because um, I was taking inspiration from other trick taking games such as Tricky Tides uh, initially as I went into it. And so um, you know if you're familiar with trick taking games. They involve um, everybody plays one card from their hand. First person that plays leads with a suit and whoever plays the highest number of that suit takes the trick. But with Tricky Tides, it does a cool thing where the highest number of the suit takes the trick and they, they get a bonus in getting to go first and the, uh, moving their, their ship. The lowest number, if you're playing with this variant, gets a, uh, of the lead suit gets a bonus power of this you know creature. And, uh, so I kind of took inspiration, like the highest gets something, the lowest gets something. And then the, uh, there are dice that are rolled in tricky or in balloon jockeys that controls movement of your balloon. And I thought, Oh, it'd be cool if like the, you know, the middle numbers aren't getting any love. What if you played a number that was the sum of the dice, you got a bonus as well. So, um, it was kind of interesting in I, in concept, but the pacing of the game was slow. And I was, I was just like, man, this, this card play isn't working as well as I want but the uh, scenarios are working so well. How do I fix this? So I took it through the SWOT analysis. And so I'll I'll take you through just some of the things I was looking at. With the strengths of the game at that time, it was kind of a unique theme with a potentially gorgeous art style with, you know, like skies and hot air balloons. I had a scenario book going on, kind of like uh, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, a spiral bound book where you just flip it open to whatever scenario you want to play. The game's practically set up for you and you dive right into it. Um, so that was the strength of the game. And there there were a few little mechanisms that I, that I was thinking to myself, these are really good mechanisms. Like they they when they are used during aspects of the game, they really hit the spot, you know? So then the weaknesses, the cards felt a bit samey. I, I touched on that. The game lacks a bit of tension in the card play and hand management. Uh, the rules are a little bit fiddly with those bonuses that I was talking about. As far as like, okay, now who played the highest of the leads? Okay, now you get this bonus. You wait for them to take the bonus. Now who played the lowest? You get this bonus. So that was slowing down the game and the pacing, which was another weakness of the game. Um, as for opportunities, I realized that um, you know there there's two boards to the game. There's a landscape board where players are controlling where they're going north, south, east, west. But there's also an altitude board where they control how high their hot air balloon is at. Um, because that's how a hot air, a hot air balloonist, a pilot, um, controls their balloon. They can only adjust their altitude to the wind accordingly. And uh, I realized that I could convert the altitude pole into something physically vertical, and that would give the game a lot more table presence, kind of like the Everdell tree. Um, you know, you see that game on the table and you're like, whoa, what is that? Um, so kind of give it an extra hook in that way. Uh, obviously, the eye-catching artwork, if, if we hired a good artist to uh, make that happen. That would be a great opportunity. And then even more scenarios and expansions in, within that spiral bound book. As for the threats, I was thinking about games like Tricky Tides because obviously I took some inspiration from that when I designed it. And so um, people may look at it and say, okay, I can see a few similarities here, but you know, at the end of the day, Tricky Tides is probably gonna be a cheaper game than what I'm trying to create. So that's a threat. Um, the crew, the quest for Planet Nine is a fantastic trick-taking game. It's cheaper, it's faster, it has loads of replayability. Um, so, you know, within the genre, that, that would be a threat. Um, the game is also a little bit like Downforce and Flam Rouge, where there's kind of a movement that you control from round to round. And so those were some of the games I was thinking about, okay, of how do I differentiate this game from those so that it's, you know, worth it to people to own both on their shelves and love both. So when I kind of took this design through the ringer, what I came out with was um, a few different ideas. And I quickly uh, came upon one that simplified the rules and eliminated all the weaknesses at once. And it was very cool to see that that happen where I, I removed all the bonuses for the uh, trick taking aspect. And it came down to, okay, whoever wins the trick takes the cards, just like in a classic trick taker. Cause I was thinking about other trick taking games and how they are fast paced, in that sense. And so that sped up the game. And then suddenly it mattered um, when you played your highest cards because you wanted to win the bonus cards. Cause those actually can be spent as we call them gusts of wind as ways to uh, kind of slightly push yourself a little bit further or give yourself that little extra edge because you're, you're sort of a victim to the wind in one sense, just like real pilots are in real life. But the gust of wind give you that little extra strategy that you spend at the right time and in the right place. And so I uh, really came upon this, um, I guess, perfect solution to the core gameplay. And it was all through coming up with this SWAT analysis.
0: Wow. OK, that's that's awesome. And it sounds like a really helpful process to go through, especially when your game maybe is in a place where you're not quite sure where to go. You're like having maybe to figure out some design decisions or choices to make about the game. Like, do I want to do this mechanism or that one? Do I want to do this art style or that one? Maybe the game's just at a standstill. I think, I think it can be really, really helpful. Now, is it always helpful to go through all of these or do you ever find yourself just doing one uh, individual thing, like only looking at the opportunities, you're only looking at the threats to then figure out how to you know get through something?
2: Oh, definitely. Um, I have another game, a con artist, that's, it's a, it's an astrology game. You're, you're drawing constellations and it's a bit like a fake artist goes to New York. But if you, if you played a fake artist goes to New York, the way it's set up is somebody writes down all these topics on cards, right? And they hand out those topics to everybody, but one person gets a card that just doesn't say the topic on it. And then they have to blend in with everybody else. And as this paper gets passed around and they draw a single line that hopefully doesn't draw suspicion to themselves. And so I had kind of a similar structure with this constellation drawing game but found that it was such a long setup with, uh, you know, from from round to round, as well as people were looking at the game again and saying, okay, it's a little bit similar to a fake artist goes to New York. And so there was kind of the game was lacking a hook or a key differentiator as well as it was a long setup. And I realized, you know, if there's some kind of physical components that is cool, kind of like Wavelength, if you played that, that's one of my favorite party games. You set that thing up. It's like a game show like wheel that you spin and uh, and then players interact with uh, something along those lines that just kind of has this wow factor when people walk by the table, but also, you know, uh, lands upon the solution of, of being an easier setup where you just pass it around and people look into it. And it actually um, led to this idea of coming up with a telescope for the game and it uses polarized lenses. And actually, Chris Stone in the community helped me to uh, design the, the 3D. Uh, he 3D printed it and came up with it with me. And uh, it's been really cool to see how that's solved the weaknesses just by looking at those as well as the opportunity of, of coming up with a physical component.
0: Yeah, very cool. Well, Nate, this has been great, man. Closing thoughts: What would you tell somebody that maybe the, they're stuck on a design right now? They've been trying to figure out a way forward, but they, they just can't, you know, get through the design challenge or whatever. What would you say uh, as an encouraging word, and maybe as a, a helpful helpful advice to get them to use this analysis process?
2: So, obviously, what got you here was a passion and a vision for what you wanted your game to be, and it can be really hard to keep that passion and that vision. As you get stuck in a bad play test or a, uh, a difficult obstacle or, or a strong weakness of the game or of the rules that just you're pounding your head against and can't seem to come up with, with any solutions for. So using things like the SWOT analysis that, that helps you to take a step back and reevaluate where is your game at within the, you know, your vision, um, where do you want it to head? Um, where is it at within the industry and what kind of problems can it solve? Um, what, what can you get people excited about with this, this design and this vision that you have? I think those kind of things, when you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, it helps you to solve the smaller little problems that, that often plague, uh, the development process. So I would, I would say just, um, you know, really keep that vision and that passion in mind. Cause that's, that's going to help you get through those hard ruts.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Nick, tell us where we can find your games, find you online.
2: Yeah. So we are at bitewinggames.com. Kyle Spackman and I started this. We're actually both dentists coincidentally. So bitewing is a play on uh, dental x-rays, but, uh, at bitewinggames.com, we started a blog and actually a podcast. We debuted this, the week of this recording, um, or debuted, sorry, I'm terrible at saying that word, but, um, we, we like to share content that um, hopefully helps gamers, hobbies gamers like us, because we're passionate about playing other people's designs to find things that fit their tastes and maybe develop new tastes. But also hopefully, you know, just like the SWOT analysis, giving people who are designers or creators more tools to add to their utility belt. So that's kind of what our content is focused on. And you can find our website, buywinggames.com, Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, all that good stuff, Instagram. Awesome. Well, Nick, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you
0: coming on the show. Good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks a bunch. It's been great to be
2: on here.
1: Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at QMLogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?